excellent book, Standing Tall, somewhat dated now, author Steve Farrar relates the following true story. He says, in September of 1985, a huge party was held at one of the largest city pools in New Orleans. And the reason for this festive event was the admirable safety record of that particular pool. The summer of 1985 was the first summer in countless years that a drowning did not occur at the New Orleans City Pool. So to celebrate that momentous summer, now finally and officially over, over 200 guests were invited, including over 100 certified lifeguards. It was a great event. Everyone, especially upbeat and thrilled at the accomplishment and the celebration, the atmosphere was jovial and full of enthusiasm. And it wasn't until a few hours later when the party was finally over that someone noticed a fully clothed man at the bottom of the pool. And unfortunately, all of their attempts to revive him were in vain. It was too late. But ironically, the man had drowned, surrounded by lifeguards who were celebrating their success. Now, in a way, that tragic story reminds me of the great irony in our contemporary practice of discipleship when compared to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. If you've looked at them at all, and we've studied them for previously for the last uh, few weeks before Christ preached. Now, while we in America consider what video or we're going to project on the screen to open the service... What social media outlet we ought to use to publicize our services and what new music we should prepare for the worship service and what new audiovisual equipment that we should purchase. There is a church somewhere suffering the agony of having no Bibles, no hymnals, no newsletters, and maybe even no building to meet in. Places where if you're even suspected of being a Christian, your life is in grave danger and in jeopardy. Places where Jesus is real every moment of every day, not just for an hour on Sunday. Where standing up for Jesus becomes a matter of life and death, where outward free open worship celebrations are not only discouraged, but against the law. The tragic story I just told you reminds me of the subtle danger that we can experience of having it so good for so long. And I think it causes, well, it causes me to ask as a pastor of a church where it is easy to worship and celebrate Christ with either no or minimal repercussions other than the music is too loud or too fast or too slow or too old or too new. Getting my drift? That in the midst of our celebrating Jesus, have we lost sight of the whole purpose of celebrating Jesus? Are people drowning in sin and dying without Christ right in the midst of our joyous celebrations and we don't even realize it? Now, God has historically been extremely gracious and good to his church here in America and especially to his church in Fayette. Even in the aftermath of the recent pandemic, our, the church is still able to gather. And look at all the people here this morning. This is great to have you all together and be able to celebrate communion together in community. But let's not get too carried away in all of our celebrating as if the difficulty of discipleship is over because it's not over till it's over. Yeah. 
In other words, in the words of a very insightful, wise person, it ain't over till it's over. Are we in danger of ignoring the drowning people in our midst because we're afraid to risk ourselves in order to pull them to safety? That's the question of Matthew chapter 10 that we're going to look at today. If Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior of the world, the God of the universe who became man and experienced every form of temptation, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who felt our pain and walked the road of suffering, said that the road to discipleship is difficult, painful, unselfish, and is likened to the backbreaking agony of carrying a cross. This is what Jesus said. We have to think, why could we possibly act as if we can indulge our every desire and whim, and that the fellowship of his suffering, as the scripture says, is a thing of the past, and that the road to Christ-likeness today is all crowns in glory. Nothing's changed if the Word of God tells me anything, it tells me, especially out of Matthew chapter 10, it tells me that if that's what I think Christ, following Christ is all about, then I haven't got a clue about what following Christ is all about. Discipleship in the real world is anything but a walk in the park. It's a mission into dangerous territory, as we've seen. As Jesus indicated in Matthew 10, verses 17 to 23, to his initial disciples, we also are being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's what he said. So the heat is on. And Jesus warned, beware of the attacks, bank on God's assistance, be prepared for the animosity, bear up and affirm your salvation, and be smart and avoid trouble if you can. That's what he said in the previous messages here, texts that we've looked at. That's our mission. Those are his conditions until he returns again. These are his words in Luke chapter 14, verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, what does it say? Cannot be my disciple. That's the minimum daily requirement. Okay? It means a radical change of our normal way of life, if there's any such thing as a normal way of life. And it takes spiritual courage. Spiritual courage. It means stopping before every action we take, every word we speak, every decision that we make, and ask ourselves, what would Jesus' response be in this situation? And then having the spiritual courage to step out and do what the Holy Spirit leads you to do. No matter what the cost, no matter what the consequences, no matter what the controversy. Our whole life should continually be wrapped around what Thomas Akempis once called the imitation of Christ. If you've read that little devotional, it's a classic the imitation of Christ. I think that is what being his disciple is all about. Those are the cards that Jesus laid on the table in Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 to 31. So I'd like you to find that little text in your Bibles if you haven't already turned there. Matthew 10, 24 to 31. Now be prepared for what you're about to hear for the question that hangs over your life and mine today. The challenge that presses in on us is this. 
Are you ready to take that step? Am I ready to take that step? Because it's going to require faith. And it's going to require something else. Spiritual courage. The imitation of Christ requires spiritual courage. Follow with me as I read verses 24 to 31 in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, a disciple, that's you and I, if we're in Christ, is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Uh, It's not going to be an easy text today, is it? Spiritual courage starts with embracing our identity. That's the first thing that we're going to see in this text. It starts with embracing our identity. You'll see that in verses 24 and 25. We're going to look at that. I don't know what to do, the man said to his therapist. My wife thinks she's a piano. What? Well, then bring her in for an appointment. Are you crazy, screamed the husband? Do you have any idea what it costs to move a piano? (laughs) Here's the moral of that kind of crazy little story. If you think yourself to be a follower of Christ, if you claim to follow in his steps and exhibit the things that Christ expects of his followers, then you will be seen by others as a follower of Christ and treated accordingly. Okay? Jesus is laying down a very simple principle here. He explains it and then he quickly applies it. No frills, no great speech, just simple, straightforward truth. A student, he said, is not above his teacher. Period. A servant does not outrank his master. The follower is not greater than the leader. It is enough that the student, the servant, or the follower become like their models. As Christians, we are not better than Christ, are we? Are we? No one would argue that fact. But here's the kicker. If as Christians we are not greater than our master teacher, Jesus Christ, then we should not expect to experience any greater treatment in the world than he did. Is that right? But we do. But we do. Somehow we've convinced ourselves that we have the personal right to be heard, that we have the personal right to be respected as Christians by the government 
and by school systems, by the atheist neighbor down the street, etc., etc. We think that we have the right to enjoy freedom to preach Jesus on the street corner and not be silenced or ridiculed. If they put Jesus on the cross because of his teachings, if they killed the apostles because of their preaching, should we expect to be treated any better? Jesus said, disciples not above his teacher. Now granted, we live in a free society. Amen? Supposedly. But the truth is, is that if Jesus was not revered in his day, his disciples will not likely be respected in this day, no matter what country you live in. Life in Christ, by definition, confronts the evil thoughts and intentions of a sinful world, and by no means will that world take that lying down. They just won't. Period. Jesus implied on numerous occasions that his true disciples desire nothing more and would settle for nothing less than to become in character, knowledge, and action as their teacher. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher, Jesus said. John 13, verses 13 and 16, Jesus says, You call me the teacher and the Lord, and you are right, for so I am. But truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. Friends, we are sent ones, aren't we? Aren't we? We're not greater than Jesus. Our desire is to become like Jesus. But in the process of becoming like him in character and wisdom, we will also become like him in the treatment that we receive. You can't just pick and choose about what part of Jesus you want to be like. Because if you're only like one part of Jesus, the good part, that's not the full Jesus. Jesus suffered. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus had enemies in the world because he confronted sin and he confronted the sinful tendencies of the world. On the night of his arrest, Jesus warned, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. That's John 15 and verse 20. And the end result of becoming like Christ is to be treated like Christ. And if they have called him Beelzebul, how much more will they call you and me? Jesus, the head of the household, the Lord of all, was called by the self-proclaimed religious police of the day that he walked, Beelzebul. Okay? You know who Beelzebul was? Well, Beelzebub, by the way, don't call anybody Bub. This is just another one of my little pet peeves. Bub is short for Beelzebub, all right? You don't want to be called the pagan Canaanite deity worshipped by the Ekronites. That's who Beelzebub was. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2, you can read all about it. His name means Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. But the change of the name 
used by the Jews also changed the meaning of the word. The change from Beelzebub to Beelzebul can mean either Lord of the dwelling or Lord of the dung. What do you think they were calling Jesus? Lord of the dwelling or Lord of the dung? It was used by the Jews as a designation for Satan, the prince of demons. They repeatedly threw this derogatory title in Jesus' face, not only charging that his power to cast out demons was from Satan, Matthew 12, implying that he was possessed by the devil in Mark chapter 3 and in John chapter 8, but here Jesus said that they claimed that he was the very incarnation of Beelzebul to refer to Jesus, the Lord of the universe, as the Lord of the dung was the vilest form of blasphemy and identified by Jesus to be an unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin. Now here's the rub. If that's the way they treated him, what do we expect? What should we expect? Jesus said that the members of God's household will be treated just as the head of the household is treated. Guilty by association, right? You're part of the family. Yet there is comfort in that statement as well. You say, where's the comfort in that, Pastor Russ? Where's the comfort in that? Well, we can have spiritual courage to endure the name-calling and the threats precisely because we are members of God's household. Amen? Amen? Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12 says this, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Do you notice that I highlighted the words in red because of me? Now, if you're insulted and you're persecuted and they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because you did something really messed up, there's no protection in that. This says because of me, because of your association with me, because of your identity in Christ. When Christianity gets really tough, we can say with confidence, I am a Christian. I am walking where others already walked. I'm walking where Christ himself has walked. Don't expect to be accepted and loved by the world when it hated and crucified Christ. Don't expect that our commitment to him will make us famous and well-respected when Jesus, our master, was despised and rejected and forsaken of men. We will discover spiritual coverage when we embrace our identity as followers of the one who was hated by the world. It is precisely, mark this now, it is precisely when Christianity costs us something that we find ourselves closer to Jesus than we've ever been. It's precisely when we when Christianity costs us something that we find ourselves closer to Jesus than we've ever been. As William Barclay says, if we know the fellowship of his sufferings, we shall also know the power of his resurrection. That's what Paul wrote. So number one, spiritual courage starts when we embrace our identity. Secondly, spiritual courage comes from remembering 
God's victory. Look at verses 26 and 27. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that won't be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Have you ever watched a pre-recorded football game or baseball game or soccer game after you already knew that your favorite team had won? And then you go back and you watch it. You look at it and you react to what goes on with a whole different attitude, don't you? Than you would if you had no idea what the outcome was going to be. If the opposing team takes the lead or your team makes errors and mistakes, you may react with emotional disappointment while you're watching it, but it's not devastating because you immediately remind yourself that your team's going to win. We know the end, right? No doubt. Well, that's exactly the attitude that Jesus tells his disciples that they should have in these verses. Three times in six verses, Jesus stresses, do not Fear. Do not fear them in verse 26, right? Do not fear those who kill the body in verse 28. So do not fear in verse 31. He says, don't be afraid, guys. Don't worry about what they're going to say about you. Never once fear their intimidation or stop proclaiming the truth because of their threats. There may be some trouble. Oh, there will be some trouble. You may experience some hard times in this life, but you will be vindicated in the end. We win. You know the outcome. John 16, 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Done deal. The day's coming when all things will be revealed. Everything that's been kept under wraps will be laid out in the open. Every secret will be out of the closet and out in the open, as it says here in verse 26. Every enemy will be exposed. Who they are, what they've done, whom they've persecuted, how they will be judged. Every ally, every believer will be revealed. Every righteous person, who they are, what they've done, whom they have honored, and how precious they are to the Father. All truth, all goodness, all falsehood, all evil, it will all be exposed for what they are someday. And it is for that reason that our chief concern should not be what the world says about us now, but what God will say about us later. Amen? That's precisely why I would rather be biblically correct today than politically correct on the day when Christ returns and God blows the lid off of everything. Because on that day, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, the Lord, quote, will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from God, unquote. In the fall of 1988, Jack Canfield and his wife Georgia were invited to give a presentation of self-esteem and peak performance at a conference in Hong Kong. And since they had never been to the Far East before, they decided to extend their trip and visit Thailand. And these are his words. He says, when we arrived in Bangkok, we decided to take a tour of the city's most famous Buddhist temples. Along with our interpreter and driver, Georgia and I visited numerous Buddhist temples that day. But after a while, they all began to blur in our memories. 
However, there was one temple that left an indelible impression in our hearts and minds. It was called the Temple of the Golden Buddha. You heard about that? Temple of the Golden Buddha. The temple itself was very small, probably no larger than 30 feet by 30 feet. But as we entered, we were stunned by the presence of a 10 and a half foot tall, solid gold Buddha. It weighs over two and a half tons. Okay? It is valued, or then, when he wrote this, at approximately $196 million. Quite an awesome sight, he said. As we immersed ourselves in the normal sightseeing tasks, I, w- I walked over to the glass case that contained a large piece of clay, about 8 inches thick and 12 inches wide. Next to the glass case was a typewritten page describing the history of this magnificent piece of art. Back in 1957, a group of monks from a monastery had to relocate a clay Buddha from their temple to a new location. The monastery was to be relocated to make room for the development of a highway right through the city of Bangkok. When the crane began to lift the giant idol, the weight of it was so tremendous that it began to crack. What's more... Rain began to fall. The head monk, who was concerned about damage to the sacred Buddha, decided to lower the statue back to the ground and cover it with a large canvas tarp to protect it from the rain. Later that evening, the head monk went to check on the Buddha. He shined his flashlight under the tarp to see if the Buddha was staying dry, and as the light reached the crack, he noticed a little gleam shining back and thought it pretty strange, and so... As he took a closer look at this gleam of light, he wondered if there might be something underneath the clay. So he went to fetch a chisel and a hammer from the monastery, began to chip away the clay. And as he knocked off shards of clay, this little gleam grew bigger and bigger and bigger. Many hours of labor went by before the monk stood face to face with an extraordinary solid gold Buddha that was covered in clay. Historians believe that several hundred years before the head monk's discovery, the Burmese army was about to invade Thailand, called, then called Siam, and the Siamese monks realized that their country would soon be attacked, so they covered their precious golden Buddha with an outer covering of clay in order to keep the treasure from being looted by the Burmese. And unfortunately, it appeared that the Burmese slaughtered all the Siamese monks and the well-kept secret of the golden Buddha remained intact until that fateful day in 1957. Now, why do I tell you, take the time to tell you that story? Because many of us, if not all of us, are like that clay Buddha covered with a shell of hardness created out of fear. And yet for each one of us who are of the household of God, underneath that outer shell is the golden truth of who we are in Christ. Our real self. It seems that somewhere along the way of our Christian journey, many of us begin to cover up our Christianity or our golden essence, so to speak. And much like the monk with the hammer and the chisel, God will one day reveal to the world the truth of who's who. And one day the brilliant blinding light of those who are in Christ will come into view. 
but also the deepest, darkest secrets of those who despised him will also be laid bare. Jesus said, don't be afraid of them. Don't be silenced because of their persecution. Everything's going to be revealed in the end. And in the meantime, don't hide the light of the truth under a thick covering. Let it shine forth. Amen? Now, I don't believe that it's a coincidence that the same concept was part of Jesus' teaching earlier in one of his most famous sermons. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, and I'm going to read it to you out of the message so you get a little bit of a different flavor. He says, you're here to be the light, bringing out the God colors of the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I put you there on a hilltop on a light stand, shine. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the verses. This is old Latin proverb that reads like this, great is the truth and the truth will prevail. Great is the truth and the truth will prevail. That is our motivation for spiritual courage as we face the hardships of discipleship in the real world. The day will come when things will be seen as they really are. Jesus says, what I tell you in the darkness, in verse 27, speak in the light and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Why should we keep God's truth a secret? What in the world would ever make us shrink away from giving people hope and showing them the truth? And I'll tell you what does. Do you know? Fear. Fear. And that's why Jesus said in this verse, don't fear. Therefore, do not fear. What God has revealed to us, we must publicize. Don't fall into the lie which says that the truth of God's word and the tenets of Christianity are no better or more binding than the Buddhists or the Muslims or anyone else's. Don't fear being labeled intolerant if you proclaim the moral biblical truth about sin. We must proclaim with the loudest voice possible that Jesus' truth is the only truth, his way is the only way, and in him is the only life. Amen? That's just what Jesus is getting at here. In Jesus' day, the Jewish rabbis would often train their disciples to teach by standing beside them and whispering in their ear. And what the student heard, they would then speak to those around them. So Jesus, as our great rabbi, expects us to proclaim, actually the word means to herald, every truth that he reveals to us in his word. What he speaks to us we are to proclaim to others without fear or apology. You know who does that kind of thing? Children. Don't they? Children. They don't care what other people think about them. They'll run around and say anything to anybody. Right? At the risk of embarrassing my eldest son, I must tell you, how I encountered the depth of this passage when he was four years old. Not many of you know Joshy. He's, 
he's been moved away from here for a while, but um, Josh is like everybody's friend. He's everybody's friend. When Josh was four years old, we lived in an apartment complex in Augusta. And we were surrounded, our whole complex was surrounded. It was like a big, huge place. Surrounded by Jehovah Witnesses. So the line of apartments formed a three-sided enclosure, which was like a small amphitheater. And I'll never forget the day in his few short years of exposure to Christ, he took his plastic toy guitar and he climbed up on a box in the center of the complex and he started singing at the top of his lungs how much he loved Jesus. The true gospel heralded from the mouth of a young boy in the middle of Jehovah Witness territory. See, what we had taught him up to that point, we were new Christians, what I believe Jesus himself had whispered in his little ear, he proclaimed from the housetops. That is not merely the naive actions of a child who doesn't know any better. Don't chalk it up to that. That was the simple act of a child's pure and profound love for Jesus Christ as Lord. Unencumbered, not worried, not fearful. To him, it was unthinkable that anyone should not be enthralled with God's goodness. Would we dare that we know any better than that? Friends, the truth will be known. It will be unveiled in the very end. We must listen and speak what we have heard from our great rabbi, Jesus. Spiritual courage begins when we consciously embrace our identity. It takes root in our souls when we remember God's victory. And thirdly, spiritual courage lives by asserting God's sovereignty. Look at verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. It's only when we become increasingly passionate for Jesus and his truth that we will become unhindered by public opinion. For the second time here, Jesus emphasizes the fear factor. He says, don't fear them, never fear them. He says, fear God instead. When you fear God, you don't fear man, right? You wanna know what our biggest problem is in discipleship, honestly? And I'm speaking to myself every minute as much as I'm speaking to you because I'm just like you. Here it is. The greatest obstacle to our becoming like Christ is that we fear people more than we fear God. We do. We fear what they say. We fear how they will look at us. We fear how they'll treat us. We fear we'll look like imbeciles. Every day we come face to face with it. And the harsh reality is embedded in this one statement made by a Christian writer. He said, quote, the strokes of the scorn of our peers become more important than the approval of Jesus, unquote. I dare any of us to deny it. We're afraid of what others may say. Peter G. Van Bremen identified it plainly. He said, quote, we're immobilized by the thought of what others will say. The irony of it all is that the opinions we fear most are not those of people we really respect. Yet these same persons influence our lives more than we want to admit. This enervating fear of our peers can create appalling mediocrity. Oh boy, that hurts. This enervating fear of our peers 
can create appalling mediocrity. Mediocrity. It's even worse than that. It can create downright apathy. But Jesus commands us, he doesn't offer a suggestion or an opinion, but he commands us here that if we're going to fear something or someone, fear something that's absolutely terror-inducing. That's God. Fear the one who has the final word. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, don't be bluffed into silence by the threats of bullies. There's nothing they can do to your soul, your core being. Save your fear for God who holds your entire life, body and soul, in his hands. That's the message, paraphrase of this same verse. You know, Satan, his demonic hosts, and the people under his control have great power and may instill great fear in us, but God is the one who is in control of our destiny, isn't he? The wise writer of Proverbs said, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. I love this story of the well-known preacher by the name of Peter Cartwright, also known as the backwoods preacher and the Lord's plowman. He became one of the leaders of what we now refer to as the Second Great Awakening. Cartwright personally baptized over 12,000 people during his ministry and preached more than 15,000 sermons. I'm like, oh boy, who can measure up to that, right? He was a circuit rider, revivalist, preacher, and he spent most of his ministry in Kentucky and in Tennessee, and he didn't beat around the bush, and he was famous for telling it like it was. Cartwright was preaching a revival at a church when General, later President, Andrew Jackson entered late into the meeting. And the local preacher whispered the news to Cartwright, implying that he be guarded in his remarks. Here's how the story goes. Jackson, Andrew Jackson was better known for his attendance at duels than at church. But on a particular Monday in October of 1818, he decided to visit a revival service in Nashville where the controversial Peter Cartwright was scheduled to speak. And as it happened, the general entered as the preacher was reading his text. Here was the text out of Mark 8, verse 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? And with all the seats already occupied, the famous war hero was content to stand, gracefully leaning on the middle post. And at the sight of his stately appearance, the host pastor of the event a certain brother, Mac, became nervous in the extreme. Seated on the platform directly behind the pulpit, he tugged on Cartwright's jacket, whispering, General Jackson has come in. General Jackson has come in. Cartwright was aghast at the pastor's double standard. In Cartwright's own words, he says, I felt a flash of indignation run all over me like an electric shock. And facing about to my congregation and purposely speaking out audibly, I said, who is General Jackson? If he don't get his soul converted, God will damn him as quick as he would anyone else. <laughs> the preacher tucked his head down, squatted low, the other preacher would no doubt have been thankful for a leave of absence. The congregation, General Jackson and all, smiled and laughed right out, all at the preacher's, the other preacher's expense. 
And when the congregation was dismissed, my city station preacher stepped up to me and very sternly said to me, you are the strangest man I ever saw. And General Jackson will chastise you for your insolence before you leave this city. Very clear of it, I said, said I, Cartwright writes, for General Jackson, I have no doubt, will applaud my course. And if he should undertake to chastise me, well, two can play at that game. <laughs> Next morning, very early, my city preacher went down to the hotel to make an apology to General Jackson for my conduct in the pulpit the night before. And shortly after he had left, I passed by the hotel and I met the general on the pavement. And before I approached him by several steps, he smiled he reached out his hand and said, Mr. Cartwright, you are a man after my own heart. I am very surprised at Mr. Mack to think that I would be offended at you. No, sir, I told him that I highly approved of your independence, that as a minister of Jesus Christ, he ought to love everybody and fear no mortal man. I told Mr. Mack that if I had a few thousand such independent, fearless officers as you were, and a well-drilled army, I could take old England, unquote. It was said of the great Scottish preacher and reformer John Knox, as they buried him, here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. Would that be said of you? Or of me? Wouldn't you like it to be? In all actuality, the threat of death to the Christian is no threat at all, actually, when you think about it, really, right? Think about it. What would be the worst case scenario? That we'd be with Christ in heaven? That's the worst thing that can happen to you if you got killed? I suppose nobody wants to be maimed and suffer for a long time. But Jesus said, fear God. He's the one who has eternity in his hands. If you're right with him, you shouldn't fear anything else. And by the way, hell is a real place. Not many people worry about that anymore, however. People worry more about what their family would say if they become Christians than the fact that if they don't, they'll end up in hell for eternity. Listen, as Christians, we all know that hell exists. Jesus spoke about it. He described it as the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. It's a place of eternal torment and punishment that was never intended for man but created for the devil and his angels. We rarely mention it anymore. The fact is, it's real, it's forever, and God is the one who decides who goes there. And he has decided that no true follower of Christ will ever experience it. So you tell me who we should fear more. People who can only inflict physical pain temporarily and have no ability whatsoever to damage our soul or God who has the power to condemn both body and soul of those who do not know him and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I think Jesus used this graphic picture to contrast God's eternal sovereignty with man's temporary threats. Spiritual courage comes from embracing our identity, remembering God's victory, asserting God's sovereignty. And finally, finally, spiritual courage comes from re redefining our dignity. The last few verses here, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't fear. 
You're more valuable than many sparrows. You know what? The dignity that you and I have in God's eyes is not to make us arrogant. It's not to make us self-centered. It's to assure us of God's care for us. We, you, are of inestimable worth to our Heavenly Father. You matter to God. It matters to Him that concerns you. More than any sparrow, more than any whale, more than any seal, more than any owl. As Brendan Manning wrote, genuine faith leads to knowing the love of God, to confessing Jesus as Lord, and to being transformed by what we know. Jesus used the word picture of a sparrow to point out how precious we are to the Father because sparrows were recognized as almost valueless in his society. You could buy two for a cent, and according to Luke chapter 12, verse 6, for two cents, you could get five. The fifth one being thrown in for free is having no value at all. Yet even creatures with seemingly no value are not beyond God's care. That's what Jesus' point is. Jesus said, not even one sparrow falls to the ground without your heavenly Father's notice. And you are worth way more than any of them. Many sparrows. Literally, Jesus said in the original language, you excel many sparrows. We are of much more value than animals. In fact, Jesus said that the very hairs of your head are all numbered. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Scientists tell us that the average head of hair contains about 100,000 to 150,000 strands of hair, depending on your color. Believe it or not, blondes have more hair than brunettes, and redheads have less than all of them. But 150,000 strands is nothing to shake a stick at. Jesus said, you know, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, now some have more and some have less. And some have a lot less. <laughs> and God has numbered every single one of them. Every one of them. On every human being ever created. In other words, it makes a difference to him about you. What happens to you is of great significance to God. It's of great consequence to him. If he has an interest even in the number of hairs on your head on any given morning and he knows how many you watch go down the shower drain this morning. <laughs> he cares about the fact that you're hurting right now in your life maybe. He cares that your body is weak and infirm. He cares that your family might be in turmoil. He cares about your stand for Christ is causing you trouble. He's not going to close his eyes to your affliction. You might think that he doesn't notice. You might feel that he's forgotten you like Elijah did in the cave, right? But Jesus wants you to know this day that you are of incomparable worth to the Heavenly Father two seconds into heaven and you and I will wonder why we ever doubted that fact. We will wonder why we ever feared what people might say and do to us and why we never spoke up. Let me close with this quote. 
Friedrich Buechner wrote these words. Repent and believe in the gospel, Jesus says. Turn around and believe that the good news that we are loved is better than we ever dared hope. And that to believe in that good news, to live out of it and toward it, to be in love with that good news is of all glad things in the world, the gladdest thing of all. Courage, said Mary Slessor, a missionary to West Africa, is the conquering of fear by faith. Spiritual courage is what we need if we're going to be imitators of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us spiritual courage. I think you already have made it available to us through the power of your Holy Spirit, but sometimes we don't appropriate that power. Father, I realize that many of us have different personalities and we are all wired up differently. Some of us feel comfortable with standing out and speaking out and others are more reserved. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. Lord, if, if your word tells us anything, it's, it's that we are uniquely, fearfully, wonderfully made by you. But our stand for truth and our love for you should never waver, regardless of what we are faced with. So give us strength, Lord God, and spiritual courage to stand tall for you in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Because we know how much you love and care for us, and that is our security. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord whose name we pray.